as we gather together as a church for the first time in four months, it's interesting that in the Father's sovereign goodness, uh, I was, wasn't planning, obviously, to have this message on this day, or at least knowing that this would be our first time back for a while as a church. But we have this passage about Jesus sending his disciples out The church uh, in Greek is the word ekklesia, which literally means the called out ones. We're called to come out of the world, like the 12 disciples are called to come out from among the crowds of people to come to Jesus and hear him speak. But then we're called to go out, back into the world, to be heralds of the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, at the beginning of the the series, uh, when we're, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that Jesus is the new and better Moses. Jesus was reenacting the account of Israel at Mount Sinai, where the Lord entered into a covenant with them through giving them the law. Uh, Jesus said he hasn't come to abolish that law, but to fulfil it. And so his sermon on the mountain, like Moses on Sinai, was a reaffirmation of the covenant And he called the people back to see the blessings of the covenant, to see the purity and perfection of the law of God in its call to love our neighbour as ourselves. He showed us how incredibly high the standard of the law is. And, And in doing so, he forces us to look not to our attempts to keep the demands of the law for our right standing with God, but to him, to the one who is both perfectly kept the perfect law on our behalf and borne in his cross the penalty the law demands that we deserve as sinners. Well, this theme of Jesus as the the new and better Moses continues in this second block of teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Notice how, as with the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching is in response to seeing the crowds who were flocking to him. In Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Matthew 9.36-37, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, Now Matthew deliberately uses this phrase, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd, because he wants us to recall the times that that terminology appears in the Old Testament. So Numbers 27, 15 to 20, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. 
Now, Moses has just been reminded that he won't be allowed to enter the promised land with the Israelites. So he asks the Lord to appoint a successor, someone who will be able to lead the people into the land, so that without Moses they still may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And Moses is told to take Joshua, to commission him, to give him some of his authority. So do you see the parallel here? Jesus sees the crowds. He's concerned for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so he commissions and authorises his 12 disciples to be engaged in some of the same ministry that he's doing, proclaiming the kingdom, healing the demon-possessed and the sick. Jesus is the new and better Moses, and the apostles are like Joshua. They're appointed here to go into the towns of Israel to tell people of the arrival of the Messiah. And then at the end of Matthew, in what we know as the Great Commission, they're sent out into the whole world to make disciples of all nations, to continue the mission of Jesus as they're empowered by his spirit, as they're assured of his presence with them. Well, there's another Old Testament passage that's also a background to these words. It's in Ezekiel 34. It's it's a fairly uh, long passage, but we need to hear it all to get the, the full sense of what's being said. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, and no one searched or sought for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples 
and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So Jesus saw that the people were harassed and helpless, and it was because of the corruption and the greed and the legalism of their leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, the priests and the Sadducees and Herod the king. This was a time just like the time of Ezekiel, where the people were despairing for leaders who would shepherd them in truth and peace and justice. But it was also unlike the time of Ezekiel, because whereas in Ezekiel 34 there's a promise of what was to happen sometime in the future, Jesus himself comes and says, I am the good shepherd. He is the Lord himself, fulfilling his promise to come and be the shepherd of his sheep, to bind up the injured, to strengthen the weak, and at the same time bring judgment on the fat shepherds who had exploited them. Now we should notice that these two Old Testament passages are focused on the Lord's dealing with his chosen people, Israel, not with the nations around them. And this is in keeping with the way in which the original promise was made to Abraham. First, he would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation and bless them. And then he would, through them, bring blessing to all the nations. And the Old Testament is chiefly concerned with the unfolding of that first stage of the promise, the formation of Israel, the Lord's dealing with them to bring them to just the right point from which the blessing may flow to all nations. And the arrival of Jesus marks the transition point. It's the final step in preparing Israel to be this channel of blessing to the whole world. This explains why Jesus tells the twelve to go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. At this stage, his mission is to the Jews. He has come to fulfil the promises that the Lord made to the Jews. He has come as their Messiah, the promised King of the Jews, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He has come to bear the sins of his people, to make atonement for the household of Israel. Only then, after his death and resurrection, will he broaden the mission to include all nations. So as we read the Gospels, we need to, in a sense, still be thinking in Old Testament terms. Jesus comes as the culmination, the fulfilment, the conclusion of the Old Testament story. And the Old Testament finishes not with Matthew chapter 1, but with Matthew chapters 27 and 28, where Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead. His death marks the beginning of the new covenant, which he says is in my blood. 
And that's why in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why we have this first sending out of his disciples just to the Jews here in chapter 10. And then it's only after he's raised from the dead in chapter 28 that they're sent out to every nation. Now, what that means is uh, the way that these uh, 12 were sent out, uh, in many ways there are aspects that were unique to them because of their unique context. And what that means is that as we look at this commission in Matthew 10, we can't always necessarily apply everything about it directly to us. We can't say that it describes our mission or that we should do things exactly as he describes them there. For example, he sends them out without any resources, no money, no change of underwear, which is what the word tunic meant, no sandals, no staff. Why? Well, he says, because the labourer deserves his food. See, for the Jews, there was an obligation to show hospitality to travellers, and especially someone who was on an important mission or who was a travelling rabbi or a rabbi's disciple. Showing hospitality was a way of embracing not just the person, but what they stood for, to welcome a teacher was also to declare your endorsement of their teaching, their message. So the way in which a town or household received the disciples as they proclaimed the good news that the kingdom of heaven had arrived in Jesus was an indication of how they would respond when Jesus himself showed up. If their message wasn't received... We see in verse 14, they're they're told to shake off the dust from your feet when you leave. This is a warning of judgment, that if they continue to reject Jesus as their Messiah, they would be just like the Gentiles. When a a Jew returned from travelling outside the boundaries of Israel, when they had been in Gentile or Samaritan territory, they would stop as they entered, crossed the boundary, into the Holy Land and they would clean their feet and shoes because they didn't want to contaminate the ground of the Holy Land by bringing in this unclean foreign soil. So to shake the dust off their feet as they left a Jewish town was a very strong, a very graphic way to say if you are going to reject your Messiah then you're no different to Gentiles. You're no different to Sodom and Gomorrah. Another aspect of the Twelve Apostles' mission that's unique was that uh, they're commanded to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, in verse 8. And this is alongside their proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, his command takes a slightly different shape. He says, make disciples, baptise in the name of the Father, Son and Spirit, 
and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Why the difference? Well, miracles had a very specific purpose in the Gospels as the Gospel itself went to the Jews. People would often demand that Jesus give a sign to verify his authority because it was expected that a prophet from God should be able to demonstrate the power of God so that people would listen to him. All of Jesus' miracles weren't just mere displays of power, but they were signs pointing to his identity as the Messiah, as the one bringing in the kingdom, as the one ultimately who would bring in the new creation. And so the signs and wonders done through the apostles also served this purpose, to point people to the truth about Jesus, whom they were proclaiming. But we see an interesting trend as the story of the New Testament unfolds, as the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the Gentiles and finally to Rome. There's less emphasis on miracles and more emphasis on the simple testimony of the gospel itself. So our mission is not to perform miracles. That doesn't mean that God can't or won't do miracles among us. It doesn't mean that he won't use miracles still to point people to Jesus, but it's not our core business. It's not something we're commanded to do. Our core business is to make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. We have to baptise them into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that's more than just water baptism. And we have to teach them all that Jesus has commanded. This is the goal of all that we do as a church. To make Jesus known. To grow together in our knowledge and love of Jesus. Now in the, the second half of this little commission... Jesus tells the twelve what they should expect as they go on mission and how they should respond to what they face. And at this point, we can learn from these words because the principles are the same for anyone who proclaims the good news of the kingdom that's come in Jesus. First and foremost, like the twelve apostles, we shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition. And like the twelve we should know in advance how to respond. I'm not going to go through everything in detail, but just, just to highlight some ways in which the nature of our mission to the nations as the church is similar to the Apostles' mission to Israel. This is a timely passage for us to look at today. We're regathering for the first time in almost four months and so it's important that we remind ourselves of the core mission of the church how we are to to go about being the church as we adjust to our new location and as we readjust to meeting together after getting used to not meeting well firstly they and we are told in verse 16 to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now we might immediately think of a snake as a dangerous creature, especially with the story of the snake in the Garden of Eden, but the imagery here is one of having good judgment or being 
cautious and thoughtful. And a dove was a symbol of innocence and purity. Doves were among the clean birds. They were suitable for use as a sacrifice if you were too poor to afford a lamb. So a dove was the equivalent, in a sense, of a pure, spotless lamb. The, the opposition and the aggression of the wolves as we're sent out as sheep among the wolves is to be met with thoughtfulness and graciousness and gentleness. The only legitimate reason people should have for opposing us is because we are proclaiming Jesus. As Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. Secondly, in verse 19, we're told not to be anxious, but we're to trust that if and when we are called to give an account, the Spirit himself will enable us to speak, so that the persecution will actually be an opportunity to speak and show the love of Christ rather than a hindrance. The undeniable testimony of history is that wherever and whenever the church has been persecuted by governments in particular, it hasn't been destroyed, but it's grown. Paul was in prison in, and he wrote the letter to the Philippians and he said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul saw his imprisonment as a sign that God must want the guards and the other prisoners to hear the gospel. And it might seem paradoxical to us that his imprisonment made others bolder in speaking without fear. But only it seems paradoxical to us because in our comfortable 21st century lives we've lost the sense that the first Christians had that it was a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Because suffering for righteousness sake, suffering for the gospel simply meant that you're more like Jesus. Suffering for the gospel wasn't a gloomy or dreary thing, but it was something that enabled them to rejoice even more in the hope they had. They knew that suffering was producing patience. Patience was producing character. Character was producing hope. And it was a hope that would not disappoint because they knew the love of God that had been poured out in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, they and we are to have a confidence to speak clearly and boldly because we know that we are being cared for by the Father, verses 26 to 31. We're not mere pawns in a cosmic chess game. When Christians suffer or even die for the gospel, we're not just viewed by God as collateral damage. The Father places great value on sparrows, and we are more valuable to him than many sparrows. 
When he says nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known, he's speaking of the day when God will bring about a vindication for his people. We may be maligned or falsely accused or beaten down now, but the day will come when all that we've done in faithfulness to the Father's mission will be recognised. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.19, tells us that those who suffer according to God's will should entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Finally, we need to see that as Jesus sends out his apostles and as he sends out us, this is not that he's giving us a task that is up to us to accomplish. Rather, we are called to participate in the work of the triune God, to be part of what he is doing. We heard in verse 20 that when we speak, we're not to be anxious because as we proclaim the good news of the Son, it will actually be the Father's words given to us by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 40 we're told, whoever receives you receives me. This this was the nature of the authority that Jesus gave to those that he sent. The authority he gives to those whom he sends. Not that we're able to gain power or control over people to convince them to believe what we believe, but that as we speak the gospel to those who hear it, they encounter the risen living Christ because we're simply his representatives, his ambassadors. But it's, it's more than that. He says, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. If we have the Son, then we also have the Father because the work of the Son is to bring us to the Father. This is the work of Father, Son and Spirit. We're just called to jump on board. I said earlier that in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we're told to baptise them into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and that that's much more than water baptism. We baptise people in water and we use that formula of words because the action of baptism is an outward symbol of the much bigger and the more significant thing that has happened in salvation, of a a greater baptism. We we have been baptised, we've been immersed into the fullness of who God is. We've come to know the Father through the Son in the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. We must have this confidence that the triune God in all he is is with us and among us as we are the church. We need to have the confidence that as Jesus sends us into the world to be his ambassadors, that we've heard his words, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We need to to know that his presence with us means that through him we have the spirit in us and empowering us. We have the Father himself accomplishing his work through us.